Uh, you know, um, every time uh, Rick comes up and does his uh, community life, um, I actually look forward to it because um, those puns that he make, I, I actually like them. I guess I must be an old school. <laughs> I actually like uh, what he says. And thank you, Deanna, for covering um, all aspect of motherhood this morning. Uh, you know, um, as I was preparing for a Mother's Day sermon, oh, <laughs> all the kids, youth, you are excused. <laughs> As I was uh, preparing for um, uh, this morning's sermon, um, I, I read about a husband who was feeling so guilty because he had not been very attentive to his wife. So he decided to do something he has never done before. He was going to go to the store, buy a box of chocolate and some flowers to surprise her. So he, he walks up to the front door, rings the doorbell, and her, her, his uh, wife is received by her husband holding a box of chocolate in one hand and a flower in the other, singing, have I ever told you lately that I love you? But instantly the wife starts to cry as her big old tears gushing from her eyes. She cries out, oh, Harry, everything went wrong today. We had a leak in the plumbing. The kids were terrible. I don't even know whose kids they were. The house was a total wreck. And now you come home drunk. <laughs> and she sobs. Now, you know, there is no doubt that mothering is one of the toughest jobs in the world. And so today, I just want to pause and say thank you for all your hard work. And as Deanna mentioned, you know, I lost my mom seven months ago, and I thought today was going to be a little bit difficult, but I, I, I'm okay. I'm okay, but I'm just kind of reminiscing of all the love that my mom had poured on my life and my siblings, and I just want to say to all of you, happy Mother's Day. So let me just do a quick prayer before we dive into today's word. Father, this morning as we celebrate Mother's Day, I personally think that mother's love is probably the closest that resemble of your love and that we want to acknowledge this morning that you have given us such a tremendous love and you're pouring your love constantly as we remind ourselves or even we look at the cross and we say thank you. We also this morning confess that we depend upon you and so would you just open up our hearts, mind and body so that you could fill us anew this morning with your word and I pray all this thing in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So as you know, we are in a sermon series called A Tough Time Equals Tough Faith, where Apostle Peter focuses on the importance of believers believing or bearing up under unjust sufferings, yet continuing to live out their spiritual life worthy of their calling. And last week, we went over five junk foods that we need to avoid 
uh, highlighting gossiping as one of the no-nos so that we could actually uh, become, right? We could actually become spiritual babes to be able to crave for the word of God and so that we could actually resemble our father up in heaven. Now today, now we're actually going to dive into chapter 3, and I've actually titled my message, When God's Holiness Meets World's Hostility. Now, there was a long pause after I came up with this title, How Do I Start Today's Sermon? Because if you guys ever go back to your high school days, when you guys are going through your writing class, your English lit teacher probably told you, you know, class, you got to have a attention-getting sentence, the thing that really, really hooks the people. So as pastors, that, that's where we kind of look forward to. As we're preparing for our sermon, we're looking for that one sentence, one-liner, right? As we prepare, how can we get the attention of the congregation? So I thought and I thought and I thought, and all of a sudden, something interesting or something very, very funny happened to me a couple of weeks ago. Now, Eric and I, now not Pastor Eric, Eric Fung and I uh, were talking in the beginning of the year, and we found out that we're in a same tennis league, same division, which meant, which meant that he and I could actually play together sometime in the road. And so I told Eric, hey, Eric, wouldn't it be funny that you and I played against each other? And that was it. That was it. That was it. Now, as he was walking by, as he was going away from me, he says, you know what, Pastor Ben, unlikely because there are so many people and the right combination, even on the same day that you and I played together, there is a different combination so that it is unlikely. Two months ago, I show up. I show up in Stonebrae Hayward, and look who I run into. <laughs> Now, once again, there are three lines. That doesn't mean that because he's on the other side that we are able to play against each other, but, but there is a different combination of three lines. And all of a sudden, I show up, I'm in my court, and who shows up? Eric Fung. So he and I are playing. He and I are playing. Now, I don't know. I don't know. It was because maybe I was playing against Eric, who is actually, I think, better player. He has a great backhand. And that day, all my shots were going in. My drop shots, my lobs, my smashes. And I was smashing. You know what? Seriously, guys, I was smashing. And you know what? Long story short, you know, I won the game and we walked away. <laughs> Two weeks ago, when we were doing our retreat, he, he and I were just shooting the breeze, and I, I, was, I was asking him, hey, you know, Eric, you know, um, I, I'm thinking of switching my rackets, and he said, hey, you know, I want to try my racket, and he had let me, and all of a sudden he says, by the way, Pastor Ben, my partner on that day that you and I played against, she actually says something, and I want to tell you, this is what he says, are pastors supposed to play that hard? Now, 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 I can take it as like, okay, in a good, okay, but on the, on the flip side, I, I guess she didn't really like the fact that I was smashing all the balls to her. And Eric was telling me, are pastors supposed to play that hard? And all of a sudden I realized that the world is watching us. Our, our mic is always on. 
and the cameras are always constantly rolling as the world is trying to figure us who we are as Christians. You know, and sometimes being a pastor, there is this special scrutiny that I am under as people often remind me of my occupation. Oh, yeah. He's that preacher guy who's not supposed to play so hard. And today, Apostle Peter is addressing to all of us that we are being watched in our responses to our government, to our bosses, or even to how we treat our husbands and wives. Now, I want to go back, a little epilogue from 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 13 and 17. He says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to take king as the supreme, or to the governors, or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by, by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish man as freely as you at using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as a bondservant of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, and fear God, honoring the king. So Peter is kind of adjusting, you know what? The world's looking how we respond to our government and to our bosses. Now, we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. People are also watching us how we treat our spouses. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if you do not obey the word, that they without a word may be won by the conduct of the wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accomplished by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on the fine apparels. Rather, let it be hidden person of the heart within the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very, very precious in the sight of God. For in this matter, the former time, the holy woman who trusts in God also adorned themselves, be submissive to their own husbands. You know, um, I think it was Pastor Calvin who actually mentioned me as I was preparing myself to do a premarital counseling to one of our young adults. And he reminded me that that showing a strange—I mean, I'm sorry—showing a strong marriage can be a great example to the world of God's love. And I think that is so true that, you know what, as we show a strong marriage, how we treat one another to our husband, to our wives, could be a great example of showing God's love to this world. Now, right now, those of you guys who agreed, uh, I should be expecting an amen from that. Amen? I, I, I don't know about that. And, and so... All these eyes are upon us, right? And everybody is just constantly kind of, you know what, uh, looking at upon us. And in verse 8 tells us then how do we react? When the world is looking at us, how we react, it tells us how we should react. And in verse 8 through 10 tells us, Finally, all of you should be one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, or reviling, reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, all of these traits and all of these attributes is what the world is actually expecting from us. You know, when they look at us, they say, hey, hey, you Christians, you need to show Christ's love. 
Now, it's a given fact. Now, when we actually do good, right, the world says to us, yeah, okay, you did good. Uh, but the question this morning is that what if that does not happen? What happens if the responses that we receive is not where we're expecting? What happens when our holiness meets hostility? What happens when we are following Christ's example, but the world retaliates not in a response that we would normally expect? Uh, January 2nd, 1956 uh, was the day that a 29-year-old Jim Elliott had waited for most of his life. And that morning, he jumped out of bed, dressed as quickly as he could. He, he got ready for that short flight over the uh, thick Ecuador jungle. Almost three years of the jungle ministry and many hours of planning and praying led Jim to this day. Within hours, he and the four other missionary friends will be settling down in camp in the territory of a dangerous, uncivilized, unreached Indian tribe known as the Alcas. But we all know what had happened on that very day. The Alcas Indians had killed Jim and his four friends as they had landed on the shores of the Ecuador jungle. Now, did Jim know what was, what was going to happen to him? Did he know of his outcome? Of course not. All he wanted to do was to tell God's love to those people. And even before he uttered his first word, he was killed at the end of a spear. And I think this is a perfect portrayal or an example when God's holiness meets world's hostility. Now, people may wonder. People say, you know what, that's a waste of life. But I actually say, why did it happen? What was the cause? And for me, I could actually surmise just one answer, and that is because they were Christians. That was it. They were just simply following the orders from God up in heaven. And all they wanted to do was to share the love that they had received onto these people. But these people retaliated, right? And so it wasn't the outcome that they had expected, nor to the rest of the Christian populations. I mean... When we do good, right, when we actually play like a good Christian, shouldn't the world say to us, great job, nice job, I'm so proud of you Christians. But it really doesn't happen all the time, does it? And I think Peter knew that this wasn't going to happen because he says in verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, for it is better... If it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So then, as followers of Jesus Christ, what should be our responses when the world retaliates? How should we react when the world does not go along with our reasons? And so... Peter actually answers this question in verse 
20, uh, verse 18 to 22, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached the Spirit in prison, of who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in few days, that is, the eight souls were saved through water. This is also the antitype which had now saved us, baptism now for the removal of the fifth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who had gone into heaven. It is the right hand of God, angels, authorities, and powers, and having all been made subject to him. Now, I want you guys to focus on, go back, and I want you to look at verse 18, because this is what it says, For Christ suffered and he died. Now, did you know that he didn't just die, but that he died of an excruciatingly painful death? In fact, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the word excruciating literally means that which is from the cross. It is, a, it is a Greek word that depicts the worst form of an ancient torture and death. Now, if you guys knew that it wasn't the Romans who invented the crucifixion. It was the Persians around 300 B.C. Do you guys remember in the book of Esther, there was a guy by the name of Haman who wanted to kill, eradicate all the Jews, especially a guy named Mordecai. And did you guys know, do you guys remember in Esther chapter 5, he actually built a, a tall, tall, tall execution kind of a vehicle called the cross, which it was 50 cubits high. Now, I went in and I tried to figure out, okay, how tall is 50 cubits, and it came out. So Haman, in Esther chapter 5, he built this tall cross, 75 feet tall. Can you imagine this? He wanted to kill Mordecai and the rest of the Jews, and he built this tall cross. But it wasn't until the Romans who had perfected this ultimate torture machine to another level. You see, they designed it to inflict maximum physical pain on the victims before they died. And person who was going to be crucified usually lasted for days, not just six hours, which we know that Jesus was suffering, but it lasts for days. And that's why the Roman soldiers would often grab a hammer and break the legs of those people on the cross so they cannot pull up or push up on the nails to take more any of their last breath so they could actually kill them instantly. Now, do you guys know in Genesis 3.15, when Satan had tempted Adam and Eve, right? And this is what God said to serpent, right? It says in Genesis 3.15, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman that I'm going to bring somebody who's going to, who's going to, right? He's going to crush your head, but he's going to bruise his heels, and that's exactly, but way back in Genesis 15 and Genesis 3:15, it foretold about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And Jesus suffered this kind of death. Now, but you guys know that his suffering did not begin on the cross. 
And Peter was right there to eyewitness his death from the beginning, from the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus sweated great droplets of blood. And the medical expert says that there are these tiny capillaries that can burst inside of a sweat glands in a forehead called, now I'm going to butcher this, it's called hemocidiosis. Did I say it right? No, she's looking at me, no, I don't think so. It, it, is a, it, it is a rare condition, but an extreme emotional condition. A person can actually sweat blood mixed with the sweat that comes out of people's pores. Can you imagine yourself, you're sweating bullets? I mean, sweating blood? And Peter also eyewitnessed that Jesus, not having one trials, but not two trials, but all total, he had six trials. And in one, you remember G, uh, Peter, he was there, right? Denying Jesus three times. And all of these trials were illegal, right? Now, as I was kind of reading this, you know, talk about being mistreated. You know, when we are being mistreated, what do you do? What do you do? Don't we scream out, I want justice, right? I want justice right now, don't we? But we know that Jesus was wrongly accused. Then Pontius Pilate had him beaten with a flagellum, beaten pretty bad like a rod hamburger, then taken to a place called Golgotha, carrying the heavy cross that where he was crucified for the sins of the world. So then, Apostle Peter is writing to all the suffering groups of the people during that time, and he's saying, Jesus, our Savior, also suffered and died in the flesh. Died of an excruciating death. What's the most painful sufferings that you have ever suffered in your own life? But you know what, as much as we might suffer, rather that it's physical or emotional, here is the reality check. Do you know that we will never suffer like what Jesus did on the cross? And that's exactly what Peter is saying here, that most of us will never experience anything remotely close to what Jesus experienced on the cross. Sure, you know what, life can get really, really hard. Uh, my mom passed away seven months ago, and one of the things that I used to do every Mother's Day or Saturday before was that I would order my mom some flowers. And she hated that. She always said, why do you send flowers? They're only going to just die, right? And you know what? And, and, and if she just, you know, said it like that, that will be fine. But she add one more quotation. Just give me money. <laughs> Don't waste on flowers. This morning I woke up. A saddened emotion just kind of surged that I will never be able to send flowers to my mom. I know that my brothers in SoCal, they're going to the gravesite, and they're going to lay flowers on their graves, but the reality is that life is up and down. We go through sufferings. There's pains. But most of us will never experience anything remotely close to what Jesus had done on the cross. 
Life can get hard, sometimes really bad. Yes, there can be chronic pain, sufferings, but nobody would or could suffer something like this. And the writer of Hebrew, chapter 12, verse 4, puts it this way. In your own struggles against sin, you have not yet registered to the point of shedding your own blood. What the writer of Hebrew is saying, you have not endured pain until you have given your life for someone. So then I ask, what was the reason for all these sufferings? Why did Christ go through all these sufferings? Well, the latter part of verse 18 tells us that. Let's go back. The latter part of 18 says, so that he might bring us closer to God. We just read it, right? So that he might bring us closer to God. That was the whole reason why he suffered. You see, there was a good behind that bad. This was the benefit behind all pain and all the sufferings so that he could bring us to God. You know, when Jesus died, what in the temple tore into? The veil, right? The, the, the veil was torn from two from top to bottom. And the veil that kept the people separated and forewarned the people, hey, do not come any further. For God is holy and you're not. And you cannot approach him. But when Jesus dying on the cross, what, what Jesus is saying now, come as you are because now you can approach God. And one of my favorite verses in Romans is Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which you and I now stand. Let me repeat that. Through whom we have gained access by faith into grace which we now stand. I love this verse. It is so personal. What Paul is saying, hey, Jesus did this. Jesus suffered so that you could bring us closer to the Father, and the torn veil was the proof of his sacrifice. People of CLC, if you leave this room, and if you could get one thing out of today's message, I, I want you to know this, is that the very worst thing that happened became the absolute best thing that happened. And the very worst thing that happened became the best thing that could ever happen. What was the worst thing that happened? Killing God, death of Jesus. Now, how's that for a rap sheet? We kill God. It was a calamity, but it was the very worst thing that could happen, but it became the very, very best thing because it brought us closer to God. You see, the death of Jesus Christ became the basis by which God forgave all the sinful men and all the sinful women so that you and I could be made right with God. You see, the world's greatest calamity it became our greatest bounty. World's greatest calamity became world's greatest bounty. 
Yes. The world is constantly watching us, watching us how we respond to these kind of situations. In in verse, right, we just told you, in verse 13, right, in verse 17, it taught us we need to react in tender, loving care. But sometimes we do, right? We do. We try to personify. We try to resemble God. And we try to do what God has commanded us to do. But sometimes it doesn't work because persecution from the world is sometimes inevitable. And I think Jesus knew it too because he says in John 15, 18, it says, if the world hates you, remember that he hated or they hated me first. And so, once again, here is the reality check. It, it doesn't matter how much we suffer in the name of Jesus, we're not going to be killed in this country because of our faith. Now, we, we may get a few harsh words here and there. Or, like me, I, I've gotten kicked out of an establishment because I was preaching the gospel. But that's it. But this is no comparison to what Jesus had suffered. Now, but I do know some missionaries, actually, who had given up their lives, who had suffered tremendous pain for the name of Jesus. But as I talked to them or talked to their families, they all kind of concur that nothing compares to what Jesus has suffered on the cross. I have a very kind of a humorous uh, 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 story about persecution. I have a missionary uh, who was actually my first senior pastor when I first started my ministry way back in 1986. He, he, had, he had been a tremendous mentor, and he was really, really gracious to our family. And later we found that he became a missionary. He had done mission works to North Korea. Later, I found out after having a meal, Pastor Ben, you won't believe what happened. And he goes, what happened, Reverend Kim? And he goes, yeah, I got caught. Where'd you get caught? I got caught in North Korea. I, I went into North Korea doing some, you know, mission work. And back in North Korea, you know, you, got, you cannot sp- spread the gospel. You can't do that, right? But he got caught. Um, what happened was that as he was going to the North Korean airport, there was a pamphlet describing the gospel. Now, he had forgotten to take that out because right before his flight, someone had given that pamphlet to him and he totally forgot. And the North Korean government found out that he had this pamphlet and he was detained. He went into prison. He was in jail. And so there were a lot of persecution. There were a lot of physical sufferings and all that. And finally, they sat him down. They sat him down on a table facing to face. And the North Korean government stuck their gun right in front of him and said, you know what, if you don't tell why you were in North Korea, we're going to kill you, right? And Reverend Kim just chuckled in his mind. He didn't say it. He didn't really kind of protruding out. He just said he was laughing because, you know what, he's saying that, you know what, hey, I am not afraid of you guys. I've been enduring so much of church ministry that nothing could compare what you could do to me. 
And he was able to, seriously, seriously, this this is a true story. He was able to endure their sufferings and persecution by to think about what he was going through at his own church when he was the senior pastor of a church. And I throw out the question to you, what was the greatest suffering that you had ever suffered? Physical, emotional. And I thought about that. The question that I threw out this morning, you know, I thought about that. What was the most physical thing that I'd endured in my life? Honestly, it was like a couple of months ago when I was passing kidney stone. It was the most excruciating pain. You have no idea, right? You have no idea. But you know what? That suffering, when I was watching my mom for the last three months of her death, it was nothing compared to what she was suffering. And this is what my mom said. Right before she died, she was saying, Ben, this is nothing. Now she was going extremely, extremely painful days. And she said, this is nothing compared to what Jesus did on the cross for us. You remember I started this sermon with one of my favorite missionary stories of Jim Elliott. Now, whose famous quote, I have it on my desk at home. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. Did you guys know that after the death of her husband, Elizabeth, didn't pack up her bags to go back to America, but rather she and her children landed on the shores of that very beach that her husband was killed and the, the Indians asked, why are you here? We just killed your husband. Why are you here? And Elizabeth Elliot replied, I'm not leaving this country and going back home. I'm staying right here because God called me here and I'm going to raise my children among your children. And that's exactly how she responded to those people which retaliated with love, forgiveness, and grace. You guys know that no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we put our things together in life, no matter how hard we work for health and wealth and be comfortable or become successful in our careers, I'll guarantee you that something in life will inevitably ruin that plan. And you guys know in the secular view, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. But suffering is unbearable only if you don't realize that God is for you and God is with you. In fact, I'm gonna talk about this a little bit more in our sermon series in, in, in the month of July, but isn't it, isn't suffering actually at the heart of Christianity? I think you'll never be able to figure out this thing called Christianity, our religion, or to know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. 
Have you ever been in a situation that Jesus is all you have? And Jonathan Edwards once said, God is glorified not in his glory being seen, but being rejoiced in. It is not if enough to say, I guess he is God, so I have to submit under, but you have to see his beauty. You see, glorifying God does not mean obeying him because you have to. I think obeying God in his beauty because you want to, because you are attracted, because you delight in him in the midst of your suffering. Just like my mom said, in the midst of her own suffering, she was able to confess this is nothing compared to what our master had endured on the cross. You see, Jesus lost all of his glory so that you and I could receive that, or you and I could be clothed in that. He was shot out so that you, can, you and I could get an access to God. He was bound, nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so that we could approach his presence. Jesus took away only kind of suffering that could only destroy us, that was being cast away from God. And he took away that so that you, now all suffering could come in our lives that could only make us great. And we all know that a lump of coal under a pressure, tremendous pressure becomes a diamond. And the suffering of a person in Christ only turns into somebody who resemble God. Because there is this certain joy that only believers can understand. So next time, when your holiness meets the world's hostility, think about what Jesus did on the cross. Think about he has done that so you and I could get an access to God. I, I love that. I really, really love that aspect that Jesus did all this so that he could bring you and I closer to God's family. I don't think there's any words. There are no sayings that I could say to people who have lost you fill in the blank. You know, Pastor Calvin, um, I asked him one day, Pastor Calvin, what was the most difficult thing that you had endured in your life here at CLC? And he told me about a one incident where he had to do an eulogy, a funeral service for an infant that just passed away. And he said to me, Pastor Ben, there were no words, no sayings that could comfort and the only thing that he said to those people is that Jesus Christ loves you. And that's exactly what he did. Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let's pray. Father God, in our own life, we have ups and downs. And even this morning, Father God, as I was kind of reminiscing about my own mom, there is sure, there is this sadness, but I'm remembered 
of her words, but also, Father God, I look to the cross. Every day, Father God, every morning, I want to come closer to you. And you have given that access by dying on the cross for our sins. And Father God, this morning, as we celebrate Mother's Day, and I think, Lord, as I once said again, that Mother's love is the greatest example of your love. And Father God, but in this world, there are so many people, Father God, who don't really understand. And sometimes, Father God, my heart is in anguish because of that. But Lord, I pray that would you show, show mercy and grace as you have shown mercy and grace to our congregation. Would you show mercy and grace to those people still do not know you? But Lord, I also challenge our congregation as we just, just every Sunday we shout out to serve the world. I just pray, Father God, that that quote is not something that we just know by our hearts, but that we will be able to practice, be able to apply that truth in our lives. Father God, we thank you so very much because you have given us the access and I am so grateful because whenever I think of or remember or read that passage in Romans, it reminds me of your love. And so to this morning, Father God, whatever the situation that we're in with our moms, I pray in the name of Jesus, may you shower us with your love as we exit this place, as we go to our lunches, whatever we go, Father God, help us to remember what you have done on the cross. Father, I thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.